for the rest of us, we're in Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 to 25. We're going to be talking about a deliverer in training today. <clears throat> it took him a little while, as you'll see. So Japanese marathon uh, runner Shizo Kanakuri competed in the domestic qualifying trials for the 1912 Stockholm Olympics. Kanakuri set a marathon world record and was selected as one of the only two athletes that Japan could afford to send to the event that year. However, Kanakuri shockingly disappeared during the 1912 Olympic marathon race. He had had a rough 18-day-long trip to Stockholm, first by ship and then by train all through the Trans-Siberian Railway, and needed five days to recover for the race. Kanakuri, weakened by the long journey from Japan, lost consciousness midway through the race and was cared for by a local family. Being embarrassed uh, from his quote-unquote failure, he returned to Japan without notifying race officials. Swedish authorities considered him missing for 50 years before discovering that he was living in Japan. <clears throat> in 1967, he was offered the opportunity to complete his run. He accepted and completed the marathon in 54 years, 8 months, 6 days, 5 hours, 32 minutes, and 20.3 seconds. This is what he said. It has been, or it, it was a long trip. Along the way, I got married, had six children, and ten grandchildren. Wow. <laughs> that was a long race, wasn't it? But we're going to see the same thing in Moses in his life. As he's this, de de this deliverer and training, it's going to take 40 years. And he's going to have two children, and he's going to get married, and all of that time. And so we're going to see that this morning. <clears throat> but Moses, as he's preparing to go into this training program with God, you know, he recognizes injustice. And he can't sit by idly and do nothing. And so we're going to see that this morning in this passage of Scripture. As a high school student here in Pennsylvania, I worked with Special Olympics one summer, and I really enjoyed it. You know, I got, I got matched up with, a, with an athlete, <clears throat> and that whole day we just hung out together and made sure that he, he got to his next event that he needed to be at and all that stuff. And it was just an incredible time of just working with Special Olympics. And then when I got to college, one of the three jobs I had my senior year of college was to work at the, at the gym <clears throat> there at Huntington University. And I would check people in and out as they would come in to use the facility. Well, once a week, there was a group from the community that would come in, and they all had Down syndrome. And I just developed an incredible relationship with these, uh, with these young people. And the one particular uh, gentleman, <clears throat> he always would come in and show me the picture of his girlfriend. He took out his wallet, and he would take out this. It was just a picture like, that you would get out of a catalog or a magazine. But he was like, this is my girlfriend. I'm like, that's great, man. We just had a great time. But man, I tell you one thing. I, I, God just put this incredible uh, compassion and love in my heart for those that are dealing with special needs. And I would, man, I would fight for them. If people would come in and mistreat them and make fun of them, boy, I didn't sit by idly. I would address that and, and, and talk with them about that. Like I said, God's given me this compassion and love for individuals with special needs and for those dealing with injustice. 
And I can get pretty defensive and, and bold when faced with injustice towards those who are weak and vulnerable. I can get pretty upset. I don't like to see that kind of stuff happen. That's not what we're supposed to be doing. It, just as human beings, let alone as followers of Jesus Christ. And so I want to encourage you to think about today, is there an injustice, injustice that you are especially passionate about? I want you to think about that as we talk about this passage of Scripture today and what happened with Moses. Well, time flew for Moses from being adopted by Pharaoh's daughter to being a 40-year-old man. And in fact, in the Bible, it happened between Exodus chapter 2, verse 10, and verse 11. There's like a 30 to 36-year uh, gap in there. Uh, that we have no idea what happened. We're not told about Moses' adolescent and young adult years. He goes from being this uh, perhaps 10-year-old to a 40-year-old like that, just in a snap of a finger, at least in Scripture here. Moses never forgot where he came from. God gave him a compassionate heart for the Hebrew people, his people. And his first attempts at delivering the Hebrews seemed to fail because his focus needed to be readjusted so that eventually he would be able to deliver the Israelites from Egyptian slavery. It was going to take some time. Moses was well-intentioned uh, because he wanted to combat injustice, but he needed some uh, God training in a rural setting before he would be ready. And so we're going to learn today that our big idea, God calls us to combat injustice. So let's pray and just commit this to the Lord. Lord, we come to you today. And Lord, we just confess to you that there are times where we just sit on the sidelines. We see things that are wrong going on in our nation, in our community, in our families, and we just keep our mouth shut. But Lord, today, I pray that you would empower us, that you would strengthen us, that you would call us to action to combat injustice, Lord God. Not to remain silent, not to sit on the sidelines any longer. So Lord, through the strength of your Holy Spirit, guide and direct us. Help us to know how the steps that you want us to take to combat injustice. And so Lord, we lift this message up to you now. Would you speak through your cracked and chipped vessel. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to look at three points today. We're going to look at rescue, refuge, and remember. And the first point, rescue, is in verses 11 to 15. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn there. Exodus chapter 2, <clears throat> verses 11 to 15. This is what God's Word says. One day... After Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Glancing this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. So as I mentioned earlier, there's this time lapse that happens 
um, of about 30 to 36 years, from Moses' adoption to adulthood. It happened between verses 10 and 11 um, of Exodus chapter 2. And we see Stephen in the New Testament. He, he, gives, uh, he gives us Moses' age at this point when he speaks before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 7. It says this, Acts chapter 7, verse 23. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. So we know, we, while we don't have it here in Exodus, um, you know, Stephen kind of fills us in in the book of Acts as to how old Moses was. And so Moses identified with the Hebrews even though he had been raised and educated in the Egyptian king's household. If you go back just one verse in Acts chapter 7 to verse 22, we read these words. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. So Moses was there. You know, he was... We don't, maybe he was 10 years old or something by the time uh, he went into um, uh, Pharaoh's daughter's household. So his mom and dad had uh, spent some time training him. And so as he's in there and he's learning the, the wisdom, the superstitious wisdom of the Egyptians, he has to weed through that so that he wouldn't uh, fall away from what he'd been taught as a child. He had to discern what was good and what was not in his training with the Egyptians. He was taught some things that would be universal in nature and would actually benefit him as he led the Israelites. They taught him law and administration. Perhaps he also learned some military exercises that were going to come in handy in the future. I believe that his parents did an incredible job of teaching Moses about the true and living God and about his heritage. Moses and his parents were living out what Solomon would later put into words in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6 tells us this, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not turn from it. We see Moses living that out. His parents had trained him up with the true and living God, that he was part of a, a community that God had set aside for his plans and purposes. And so the writer of Hebrews says it this way, in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 to 26, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as uh, the son of Pharaoh's daughter, he chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather to, than to enjoy the, the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded a disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. I hope we're doing that today. Are you looking ahead to your reward? Are you thinking about the treasures of this world? Are you caught up in those? Are you willing to be disgraced for the sake of Christ? I hope that's your answer today, that you're willing to take that step. The fact that the writer of Exodus mentions his own people twice in verse 11 shows us that Moses had not forgotten his upbringing and who he really was. He wasn't Egyptian. He was a Hebrew. Now, we don't know what motivated Moses to, get, to go out to where his own people were to watch them do their work. Um, I believe it was just a prompting of the Spirit of God. And the word watch here, it's not like he's just going out there to kind of willy-nilly hang out. No, it's observing it. It's taking, he's like taking notes in his mind. Like something's going on here that shouldn't be going on. So it, it was with intention. It wasn't just uh, haphazard. How many of us have experienced the same thing? Just the prompting of the Holy Spirit. We we just know that we're supposed to do a certain thing or contact a certain person because the Holy Spirit's speaking to us. 
There's an awareness, an urgency <clears throat> to be obedient to what the Holy Spirit's asking us to do. We might, may not always obey the prompting, even though we should. But in the times when we are obedient, it's always a blessing to see how God uses those promptings for His glory and our encouragement. So as he watched his people labor under a difficult working environment, he noticed something that stirred him up. And so we see two attempts at rescuing the Hebrews here. The first one is Egyptian versus Hebrew. Moses witnessed an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. It's very likely that the Egyptian was one of the slave masters that had been put over the, the Hebrew people. Moses recognized the injustice that was taking place, and he took measures into his own hands. Now, notice that Moses didn't look up to God for his help and guidance, but rather he looked this way and that. He's just, he knows that what he's about to do could get him in trouble, right? He knows that it's wrong, and so he looks this way and that before he does it. John Corson in his commentary says, Moses made a mistake that I often make. That is, he ministered according to need rather than according to obedience. What's the Lord telling you to do? It's not a matter of looking this way and that. It's a matter of looking up. On any given day, in any given situation, it's a matter of saying, Lord, what, should, what would you have me do? That's what Moses should have done here, but he didn't. He's going, oh, what do I sh- oh, nobody's around. So this is what I should do, right? It's like, I'm going to defend my people. And he did it pretty aggressively. Moses killed the Egyptian slave master and hid his body in the sand. Now, the same Hebrew word uh, is used for both beating what the Egyptian was doing to the Hebrew and killed or struck down what Moses did to the Egyptian. But Alexander in his commentary says this, In one sense, Moses mirrors what the Egyptian was doing to the Hebrew. He strikes, yet the outcome of Moses' action is different. For verse 11 does not indicate that the Egyptian struck dead the Hebrew slave. Moses, however, kills. And so he, he does the same kind of action with different results. Moses knew that what he was about to do was wrong, which is why he looked around to make sure no one was watching, and then he hid the body after the fact. This is kind of premeditated, what he was doing. So Scripture does not record Moses' actions as a model for us to follow when we see injustice. I want you to, I want you to make that clear. Murder is wrong, including premeditated murder. So we're not reading this today to go, oh, well, when we see injustice, we need to go kill people. No, that's not what we see here. This is to help us understand what not to do. So our first principle today is this. God can redeem and use us despite our failures. The failure of Moses did not disqualify him from being used by God to accomplish his plan and purpose. Now, it can be assumed that Moses repented of his sins of murder, anger, and hatred because God still uh, called him to deliver his people while he was in the desert uh, and appeared to him in the burning bush. God transformed Moses during the 40 years he was in the desert of Midian watching sheep. This was the training that he needed to go through in order to, to be ready to lead the people, to be the deliverer that God was calling him to be. God can redeem us, you and me, despite our failures. I think it's safe to say that none of us have committed murder. If you did, you'd probably be in jail, so you wouldn't be here in the, in the service this morning. 
But I would venture to guess that every one of us has dealt with anger and hatred and some kind of other sin. We each have weaknesses that Satan exploits. But in 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, we read these words. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. So we might be tempted to do wrong. We might be tempted to sin, but we have somebody who lives within us as followers of Jesus Christ. And he's greater than this Satan out there in this world that's tempting us to do things that we know we shouldn't do. And we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 to 10, Paul writing to the Corinthian believers, but he said... To me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We just have to recognize, God, I'm, I'm weak right now. I'm being tempted in this area. But... You are greater than the person in this world, and, and I'm going to be strong through your strength. I'm crying out to you. And when we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John writes that in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. Here's what I want to encourage you with today. We are never too far gone or have done too many bad things that God will not forgive us when we repent and turn to him. He still wants to use us. And when we do that, he'll redeem us and he'll use us for his glory. And so maybe you're ready to take this first next step today on the back of your communication card. is to repent of my sins so God can use me for his glory. Now there's a second principle here that I want us to look at, and it's this. God is pleased when we help those who are being oppressed and mistreated. Moses saw what was happening to a fellow Hebrew, and he knew it was wrong. He didn't sit on the sidelines and wait for someone else to step up. He was moved by compassion and love for the one who was being mistreated. He recognized oppression and injustice, and he got involved. As followers of Jesus Christ, we need to recognize when something's wrong, and we need to get involved. When we see someone at school being singled out and ridiculed, we need to get an adult to help with that situation. When we see a fellow employee being mistreated by another employee, we need to step up and address the issue. Confront this person. When we see injustice and oppression in our community, we need to get involved with ways to address and end the injustice and oppression. God's word is clear throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. <clears throat> All of the prophets said the same thing, that we are to take care of the poor, the widow, and the orphan. Every one of them said that. God may be calling some of us to volunteer for organizations that address abortion, child uh, trafficking, sex trafficking, orphans, the poor, widows, abuse of constitutional rights and religious freedoms. God may be calling some of us to start organizations that address that injustice. What's the Holy Spirit saying to you today? What's he saying to you today? All of us need to look up for God's guidance and wisdom to know what he's calling us to do. We can't sit by idly anymore. We have to step up and get involved. John Mark Hicks' son Joshua was born with San, Philippi, San Filippo, I don't know if that's right, anyhow, Syndrome A, a genetic disorder that causes slow mental and physical degeneration. 
In his book, Yet While I Trust Him, Hicks tells the following story about his son's experience on a school bus. From the first day Joshua saw a school bus, he wanted to ride one. He wanted to be like his older sister. He, she rode the bus, and so would he. Whenever a bus came into view, he would shout, I want to ride! Finally, his day came. Every morning, I would take him out to wait for the bus at a place near my office. When he saw it coming, he would jump and scream for joy. But one day, for some reason, he didn't want to get on. I took him by the hand and gently led him up the steps of the bus, and, and he got on, but he was whining, hesitant, and reluctant. I thought perhaps he was just having a bad day, but as the bus drove away, I learned why he was hesitant, and I heard words that tore my heart. It was as if a knife had been stuck into my gut and twisted. His schoolmates were ridiculing him. The older children were calling him names. They ridiculed his need for diapers and mocked him, uh, his use of them the previous day. As the bus drove off, I could hear the mockery. I could see my son stumble down the aisle as he looked for a seat. Anger grew inside me. All morning, I wanted to take some of those older kids aside and heap some abuse of my own on them. Let them see how it feels. Let them know what it's like to be hurt, ridiculed, and mocked. Maybe I should talk to the bus driver or to the school principal, to the teachers or to the parents. My helplessness increased my frustration. Finally, I took my anger and hurt to God. I went to my office and poured my heart before him. I held nothing back. I complained bitterly, and then I complained some more. Why was my son born with this condition? Why are others permitted to inflict pain upon the innocent? Why hadn't God answered our prayers for a healthy son? Why couldn't Joshua ever fulfill the dreams we had for him and honor the name which we gave him as a leader among God's people? Why hadn't the sovereign God of the universe blessed him with health? In the midst of my complaint, it was as if God said to me, I understand. They treated my son that way too. In that moment, God provided a comfort that I cannot yet explain, but one that I still experience in my heart. Now, only now, do I have some sense of the pain that a father has when his son is ridiculed. Only now can I begin to appreciate the pain of my heavenly father as he watched his son be ridiculed. But do you notice what this father did? He went to the Lord in prayer, but that wasn't his first desire. His first desire was to heap some abuse on those older kids, right? He saw this injustice, and he wanted to step up and do something about it, but he needed the discernment of God to know what the right thing to do is. So dealing with oppression and injustice takes discernment that can only come from the Lord. And so maybe you're ready to take this second step today, and that's to ask the Lord how he wants me to help those who are being oppressed and mistreated. Take that serious today. I want to encourage you to really cry out to the Lord. We can't sit idly by anymore. This was just one of two injustices that, witness, that Moses witnessed. He saw one the next day. How was he going to handle this one? The injustice he witnessed the next day was between two Hebrew men. They were fighting about something. We are not told what it was. It was definitely a physical altercation, not just with words because of the word that's used there, the Hebrew word that's used. Moses stepped in. He determined who was at fault and then asked why he was hitting his fellow Hebrew. And again, the Hebrew word for hitting here is the same word used in verse 11 for beating. 
and, and verse 12 for killed. So Moses was concerned about justice. And God calls us to combat injustice. Again, it takes us back to our second principle that God's pleased when we help those who are being oppressed and mistreated. And so the guilty man's response is significant here for two reasons. The first one, um, he questioned Moses' authority. The man wanted to know who made Moses ruler and judge over them. Moses' desire was to help his own people, but they didn't see it that way, as Stephen reminds us in Acts chapter 7, verses 25 to 27. Listen to these words. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? So he was like, Aren't they going to realize that God had me come as a deliverer? And they're like, No. No. The second thing we see here in the guilty man's response is that he confronted Moses about his method of dealing with injustice. Right? He kind of calls Moses on the carpet here. The man wanted to know if Moses was going to deal with him in the same way that he dealt with the Egyptian slave master. Are you going to kill me too? Stewart, in his commentary, says, From Moses' point of view, he had tried to act in secret to help one of his people, and he thought he had succeeded. Now that in the process of his further intervention to try to help another of his people, he had learned that his deed of the day before was known, the whole course he had set himself on was suddenly leading in the wrong direction. He's like, this isn't working out the way that I thought it was going to work. I thought God called me, you know, to, to be the deliverer for his people. But he needed some training to be ready to step into that role. What Moses um, realized is what he had done secretly was not a secret anymore. Potentially, the only person who knew that he had killed the Egyptian was the Hebrew slave that, had, that was being beaten the day before. He must have shared what happened with those who had seen him being beaten or when he came home with all these bruises, lacerations on his body. McKay says this, his, Moses' initial attempts at being a deliverer, worked out in his own strength and by his own wisdom, had failed. And we see the consequences of that here. Two things. The first one is he was afraid. And secondly, he had to deal with separation. When Pharaoh heard what, had, what he had done, he tried to kill Moses. So Moses left Egypt and he fled to Midian. You're going to see a picture of his trek there. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 27a, the first part of that verse, says this, By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. And then in Midian he sat down by a well. Now the Midianites were descended from Abraham, if you remember, through his, one of his other wives, Keturah. We see that in Genesis chapter 25, verses 2 and 4. They lived in the central and northern parts of the Sinai Peninsula, which is kind of that you know, section between those two bodies of water. But they also lived on the eastern side of the Elenitic Gulf, which is the Red Sea. So that, you know, you can't see all of it, but the Red Sea kind of goes around the, the peninsula that there. So God needed Moses to get out of Egypt before he used him to get Israel out of Egypt. He needed to go through some training. And so Moses was going to find refuge in Midian. Let's look at verses 16 to 22 as we look at that second point today. 
Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs, um, yeah, and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Reuel, their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so uh, early today? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? He asked the daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with them, with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah uh, gave birth to a son, and Moses gave, uh, named him uh, Gerashom, saying, I have become an alien in a foreign land. And so what we see here is, this, is refuge is our second point. Moses is confronting injustice again. While Moses was sitting by the well, he watched seven women, all daughters of a Midianite priest, come to draw water and fill the troughs to water their flock. And there were some other shepherds, presumably men, who came and drove the seven women and their flocks away. Moses couldn't sit idly by and, and watch even strangers be mistreated and abused. So he got up, confronted the other shepherds, probably chased them away or told them to wait their turn, and then watered the women's flock for them. Takes us back to our big idea that God calls us to combat injustice. And our second principle that God is pleased when we help those who are being oppressed and mistreated. <clears throat> but notice what's missing when Moses came to the women's rescue. There's nothing recorded about any beating, hitting, or killing of those who were mistreating the women. Perhaps Moses had learned his lesson in Egypt about how to correctly handle confronting injustice. He's like, I had to come here to Midian because of what I did in, in Egypt. And our third principle, I think, is pretty neat today, that God uses our past experiences to prepare us for his future purposes. How many of us can look back over our lives and see growth in how we deal with certain situations? You know, when we were younger, we may uh, have been impulsive and brash in how we dealt with other drivers on the road. Don't look at your spouse this morning. Fellow students at school, certain colleagues that we work with, maybe neighbors that we live beside, even family members or friends. <clears throat> but as we've grown and matured, uh, matured, we deal with those same individuals and circumstances with more grace, compassion, love, and patience. We can use our failures and successes to teach others what to do and not do in confronting injustice, oppression, and abuse. Moses handled the shepherds in a much better way than he did the Egyptian slave master, and the seven women noticed the, the mistreatment by the other shepherds must have been going on for some time because the girl's father asked why they had returned so early on that day. Like, why did you come back early today? What happened? And so we see another name is finally revealed in the book of Exodus. The father's name is Rehuel, which means friend of God. Now, as we continue to read through the book of Exodus, in fact, in chapter 3, verse 1, uh, we're going to be introduced to a guy named Yithro, it's the same guy as Reuel. So Yithro means, or can mean, excellence. And that may have been his title as the priest, as opposed to his actual name. So they explained to their father that an Egyptian rescued them from the shepherds and then watered the flock. <clears throat> they did not have to wait in line like every other day. 
they identified Moses as an Egyptian probably because of what he was wearing, his hairstyle, and his speech. He wanted to know where this Egyptian was and then told his daughters, go and get him and invite him to a meal. And my guess is that Moses explained his situation to Freyueo and his daughters during the meal. They offered to have him stay with them. And eventually Freyueo gave his daughter, Sipporah, meaning bird, to Moses in marriage. Now we're not told how much time passed between the beginning of verse 21 and the end of verse 21. We do know from Stephen's speech that Moses was in Midian for 40 years. Acts chapter 7, verse 30 says this, After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. So he's been there, and he got married and, and had a child during that time. Now, we're not given any timestamps again to help us know how long Moses and Zipporah were married before they had their son. We know that eventually they had another son in addition to uh, Gerashom. But Moses names his son this specific name, because it means foreigner. And because he had been an alien or become an alien in a foreign land. Now, verses 23 to 25 are really a transition or transition verses that prepare us for the remainder of the book. But we see. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites. his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked down on the Israelites and was concerned about them. So we're going to look. Sorry, my battery's died. So we're going to look at this last point this morning of remember. We see first the death of the king of Egypt. It was obviously near the end of the 40-year period that Moses was in Midian that the king died. This was the same king that wanted to kill Moses for killing the Egyptian guard. And they cry out for help, then the Israelites do. It's not stated directly, but indirectly. We know that the new king continued the oppression and slavery of the Hebrews. The Israelites groaned and cried out for help, and God heard. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God remembered his covenant, uh, that his covenant did not mean that he had forgotten. God is never early or late, but always right on time. The Israelites had been in captivity for 430 years. Stewart in his commentary says, the average Israelite likely knew at least something about the Abrahamic covenant, and it may be useful for the modern reader to realize that the term uh, zahir, meaning remember, is idiomatic for covenant application rather than recollection. In other words, to say God remembered his covenant is to say God decided to honor the terms of his covenant at this time. He hadn't forgotten, but he's like, i got to wait. God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Our fourth principle today is this, that God hears, sees, and is concerned about his people. Just like God heard, saw, and was concerned about the Israelites and their slavery and oppression, he hears, sees, and is concerned about you and your oppression, your abuse, your mistreatment. So turn to him today and know that at just the right time, he will act to redeem and rescue you.
Maybe you need to take that third next step today, and that's to hold on to the truth that God hears, sees, and is concerned about me and will rescue me at just the right time. You know, as we review a little bit, let me ask you these questions. Do you need to repent of your sins so God can use you for his glory? Do you need to ask the Lord how he wants you to help those who are being oppressed and mistreated? Do you need to hold on to the truth that God hears, sees, and is concerned about you and will rescue you at just the right time? You know, as a body of believers, we need to uh, ask ourselves, what sins do we need to repent of so God can use us for his glory? How does God want us to help those who are being oppressed and mistreated as a body of believers? And finally, we need to hold on to the truth that God hears, sees, and is concerned about us and will rescue us at just the right time. Aren't you glad that God doesn't forget? He remembers us. This is a story of 30-year-old friends who had a reunion and were discussing where they should go for dinner. Somebody suggested that they meet at the Glowing Embers restaurant because the waiters and waitresses there are young and beautiful. They all agreed. 15 years later, at 45 years of age, they met and discussed again where they should uh, have dinner. Somebody suggested the Glowing Embers because the food and wine selection there are very good. They all agreed. After 15 years, uh, another 15 years later, at 60 years of age, they once again discussed where to meet. Somebody suggested the glowing embers because they can eat there in peace and quiet and the restaurant is smoke-free. They all agreed. Another 15 years later, at the age of 75, the group discussed again where they should meet. Somebody suggested that they should meet at the glowing embers because the restaurant is physically accessible and they even have an elevator. They all agreed. Finally, 15 years later, at the age of 90, the same group of friends discussed one more time where they should meet for dinner. Somebody suggested that they should meet at the Glowing Embers because they had never been there before. <laughs> and they all agreed. Again, aren't you glad that God doesn't forget? He remembers. Even after 430 years, right? He remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He heard the cries of his people, and he said, it's time to act. And so he hears your cries today, too, and he's ready to act. And so as we just allow that message to sink into our hearts and minds today, would you just bow your heads with me as the ushers prepare to take up the tithes and the offerings and the communication cards, and as the worship team comes, let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for just developing Moses into the leader that he needed to be so that you would be honored and glorified. Lord, uh, just thank you that he was so aware of the injustice that was taking place right around him that he didn't sit idle and silent but got involved. Lord, thank you that in his anger and while he... He chose to murder someone that you redeemed him and used him in such a powerful way. Lord, would you redeem us and use us today? We cry out to you in our hurt, in our pain, in our oppression, in our mistreatment. We need your help. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.